Proverbs chapter number 1 this morning. And I want to preach to you for a few moments on the topic of wisdom. I believe we need wisdom, don't you? The difference between wisdom and knowledge is knowledge is just information. Wisdom is knowing how to use that information. And we need wisdom in this day that we live in. I believe the Lord wants us to have wisdom. There's not a lot of things in the Word of God that the Lord uh, just simply spells out for us, plain and open, that if we ask for it, we'll receive it no matter how many times we ask for it. But wisdom is one of those things. The book of James says, If any among you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, which giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not. So the Lord evidently wants us to have wisdom. There is a story to wisdom in the Word of God. The Bible says that when the world by wisdom knew not God, God chose the foolishness of preaching to save them that would believe. And in Proverbs chapter 1, the book of Proverbs is sort of a book of wisdom. And it presents to us just saying after saying that is packed with wisdom. There's not much narrative in the book of Proverbs, but it's little maxims, little sayings, truths that we can take and gain and glean and apply to our lives. But before that ever begins, as an introduction, God gives us the story of how the world has responded to wisdom. And I want us to preach for a few moments on these passages of Scripture and the truth, wisdom crieth. Let's begin reading at verse number 20. The Word of God says, Wisdom crieth without. She uttereth her voice in the streets. She crieth in the chief place of concourse. In the openings of the gates, in the city she uttereth her words, saying, How long, ye simple ones, will ye love simplicity? And the scorners delight in their scorning, and fools hate knowledge. Turn you at my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my Spirit unto you. I will make known my words unto you. Because I have called, and ye refuse. I have stretched out my hand, and no man regarded. But ye have set it not all my counsel, and would none of my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your fear cometh. When your fear cometh as desolation, and your destruction cometh as a whirlwind. When distress and anguish cometh upon you. Then shall they call upon me, but I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me. For they that, for that they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would none of my counsel. They despised all my reproof. Therefore shall they eat of the fruit of their own way and be filled with their own devices. For the turning away of the simple shall slay them, and the prosperity of fools shall destroy them. But whoso hearkeneth unto me shall dwell safely and shall be quiet from fear of evil. Let's read verses 24, 25, 26 once more. The Lord says, Because I have called and ye refused, I have stretched out my hand and no man regard. But ye have said it not all my counsel and would none of my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your fear cometh. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank You for Your Word. 
It's precious, it's pure, it's holy. Father, we don't have the tools or the capability to preach it, Lord, except You enable us to. So, Father, we ask You this morning that Your Holy Spirit would breathe upon this place. Lord, that You'd move in our midst and that You would teach us in that way that only You can. If there's any amongst us that are lost without Christ, show them their greatest need and that of Calvary. And I pray that they would be saved before it's everlasting too late. Lord, speak to Your people. Use Your people this morning. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Now, you'll notice a few unusual things as we read there. One of the things that you'll notice is the gender that is attributed to wisdom. The Word of God says that wisdom is a she. That's what it says in verse 20. Wisdom crieth without, she uttereth her voice in the streets. Now, some of you say, now, wait a minute, preacher. Does that mean that wisdom is actually a person and that person uh, is a female? No, that's not what your Bible is teaching. But rather, when anything, any noun is personified as a person, in the English language, it's common to uh, use the gender of a female. We do that uh, if we're talking about cities. We do that sometimes uh, if we're talking about vessels, ships, and, and uh, things of that nature. And so what we have here before us is poetic language. It's not necessarily telling us that wisdom is an actual person that actually spoke these things. In fact, your New Testament tells you this, that Jesus Christ is made unto us wisdom. But what's being presented to us in these verses is a poetic tool that is personifying wisdom and attributing human attributes to it so that it can tell us a story of how the world has responded to the wisdom of God. And so what we really have here is the Lord speaking to us with the voice of wisdom. So don't let that throw you there in verse number 20 and verse number 21. Uh, what we have here is the very Word of God and how that man has responded to God's revelation of himself through wisdom. Can I say to you that uh, if a man truly wanted to seek out God uh, in a logical sense, he'd find God in a logical sense. But man does not do that. When the world by wisdom knew not God, man instead allows his logic and his reason to be tempered and tainted by his own will and by his own desire. Listen, I don't care, the staunchest atheist, uh, the greatest philosopher, every one of them, their perception is colored by their fallen human nature. In other words, we all see what we want to see. And certainly the Bible says that the heavens declare uh, the beauty of God and, and the hand is handiwork. Certainly you can even through science come to an understanding that there's a God. Now, I'm not saying science can save you, but you can come to an understanding there's a God. It doesn't take a lot of sense to look at this world and realize somebody created I mean, this world functions. Anything that functions has design behind it. And anything that's got design behind it has a designer behind it. And certainly when we begin with that, uh, that beginning point, when we posit that truth and begin at that place, uh, it doesn't take long to realize that there is a God. It's a logical understanding that there must be a God. He must care something about humanity because He took such great pains to create humanity. He must be concerned with the things that concern us. The Bible teaches we're made in His image. He's not going to make somebody in His image and then ignore and cast them to the side. No, it's not an illogical thing to understand that there is a God. And yet we find that humanity as a whole has claimed wisdom as the course by which they have denied the very existence of God. They, by wisdom, have not known God. 
And so the story is told in Proverbs chapter 1 of how that happens. But I see something even deeper than merely humanity as a whole. Because I see in Proverbs chapter number 1 a picture of how a sinner dies and goes to hell. You know, the easiest thing in the world for a sinner to do is to die and go to hell. Because he really just has to not do anything. And I see in Proverbs chapter 1 the picture of the sinner as he shakes his fist at God, as he spurns God's compassion and God's advances upon his heart and his soul. I see the sad and tragic tale of every individual that has died without Christ and is in hell this morning in Proverbs chapter number 1. And so let's take a few moments this morning. I I, I told you we was going to have a five-minute meeting. Everybody was saying, are you going to let out five minutes early? And uh, no... Amen. No, I'm going to try to if, if the Lord will let us to. I want you to notice first off in the first few verses, the voice of wisdom is presented to us. Isn't that what it says? Look at verse number 20. It says, Wisdom crieth without. She uttereth her voice in the streets. She crieth in the chief places of concourse, in the openings of the gates. In the city she uttereth her words, saying. This is what wisdom is declaring to humanity. In other words, this is wisdom's attempt to communicate with the human soul. This is God's means initially of trying to speak to a human being. And I want you to notice the few things we see here. Notice the place of this voice. This is interesting language. And I've got to be honest with you, I had to sit and meditate. I mean, I'm slower than most, amen? So I, I had to sit and meditate and think on this for a little bit to gain some understanding about it. But I want you to notice the first phrase in verse 20. The Bible says, Wisdom crieth without. Now, we don't use that language very often today when we talk about without, but you'll find it all through the Word of God. In fact, when it talks about that new city, uh, the new Jerusalem, it says, Without are the ungodly, without are sorcerers, without are dogs. And what that word without is literally telling us in that text is it's saying abroad. And the Bible tells us that wisdom crieth abroad. Certainly, if you look over this world, and I've already touched on it, so I won't dwell on it, but there's no question that evidence of God is abundantly everywhere. It doesn't matter where you go in this world, you'll see a sun that rises and sets. It doesn't matter where you go in this world, you'll see seasons that come and go. It doesn't matter where you go in this world, you can go to the hottest deserts or to the coldest places of the Arctic and you dig and you look and you'll find things growing. You'll find things that are alive. You'll find things that are surviving. It's evident that wisdom of God is everywhere if man will simply receive it. So I see that wisdom is abroad, but I also see that it's abundant. Look at all the places that it describes. It says that it's without. In other words, it's everywhere at large. And then the next phrase says that it's in the streets. And then the next phrase says that it's in the chief place of concourse. Then the next phrase says it's in the opening of the gates. And then in the last phrase it says it's in the city. In other words, everywhere you look, you find this testimony that there is a God in heaven. It's not just that it's abroad, but it's abundant. It's not just that you can go to the far reaches and find it, but everywhere you turn, you'll see it. When you leave this church house today and walk out of those double doors, you'll be uh, immediately struck by things that prove there's a God to you. You'll look around and you'll see uh, probably bees buzzing around. I was weed-eating the other day and found some yellow jackets. That's fun, right? Amen? That's the kind of testimony that there is a God that you're not so thrilled to get. And... uh, Uh, you'll know there's a God because you'll be praying to Him while you're running, amen? Stripping clothes off and running. 
Somebody, if, if, if anybody says, I saw your pastor running around the churchyard naked, you'll know why, amen? But you'll go out and you'll see things everywhere that are testimonies that there is a God. It doesn't matter where you turn. And in fact, in this room, it, there is proof that there is a God. Now you say, oh yeah, preacher, we're here and we testify. No, just look at the inanimate things for a moment. Look at the church pew that you're sitting on. There's design behind it. Anybody that debates, anybody uh, that uh, is a thinking person will tell you uh, that design, that intelligence is something that had to come from somewhere. If we have intelligence and we're a created being, then that intelligence had to come somewhere. I don't believe that God stepped down from glory and built this church pew. If He did, it'd probably be a little more comfortable. So somebody say amen right there. But I do believe that the person that uh, built this church pew, the intelligence that they have is because they are created in the image of God. And when we look around, there is abundant proof that there's a God in this universe. But then I see not only is wisdom and the voice of wisdom abroad and abundant, but I see it's approaching. In fact, that's really what you're seeing in these verses. Look at it again with me and think about it. It's almost as though you have someone on the walls of a city that is watching a messenger approaching. And he sees wisdom crying. And that's sort of what a messenger does, isn't it? They cry aloud. And he sees wisdom out there on the plain crying out there for everyone to hear. And then sees wisdom approaching closer and it goes into the streets. Now it's not running or riding across the plain, but it's in the street headed their way. Then in the chief chief place of concourse. Do you know what that means, that chief place of concourse? It it literally, when you look that word up, it kind of has the idea of rabble-rousers. It has the idea of a multitude of people, a mob, so to speak. And the picture you have in most ancient cities, there would be one, maybe two roads uh, that would lead in, large roads that would lead into a city. And then there would be all sorts of uh, alleyways and all sorts of lanes and places that you could go. But it's almost as though the person says, I see them on the horizon. Then I see them in the street. Then I see them in the thick and multitude of people that are coming into this city. Then I see them in the opening of the gates. And then I look down and see them in the very city. You see wisdom approaching closer to the person on the wall. And can I say to you this morning that mankind, though he has grown dimmer and dimmer, the witness and revelation and testimony of God has only grown brighter and brighter. As we dig ever deeper into science, into the beauties of creation, into the intricacies of uh, humanity and of all that can be seen and known and felt and told, uh, we find more and more evidence that there is a God. You always hear people talk about evolution. And by the way, you know, they teach our kids in public schools that evolution is a fact. When even Darwin did not claim evolution as a fact. And they claim creationism as a myth because it can't be proven in their mind according to their ideology. And yet evolution, which cannot be proven and in fact can be disproven, they claim to be a fact. There's a thing, and some of y'all know what I'm talking about, some of y'all won't. But there's what uh, scientists call irreducible complexity. Do you know, anybody ever heard that term before? Irreducible complexity. By the theory of evolution, it's survival of the fittest. If anything is unnecessary to our survival, eventually it evolves away. That's their ideal. That's their teaching. That's their principle. And uh, that's why you've got, you know, things like like a, uh, what is it, an appendix. You know, they say, well, that's left over from something that we used to use and now it's gone. And so our appendix is slowly fading away, one insurance claim at a time. (laughs) Amen. But here's the problem. There are certain parts of the human body that are so complex that were they to be any less 
evolved, notice the air quotes, they would be of no use. And the human eye is one of those things. The human eye is comprised of hundreds of components, any one of which is removed and it no longer will function. How could something like that evolve at a slow pace? Hey, you say, wait a minute, preacher, I didn't come for a science lesson. I came to be preached at today. Well, let me preach at you for just a moment and say this, that everywhere you look, the voice of God only gets louder and louder and louder. We know more today than we've ever known, and they still can't disprove God's existence. We know more today than we've ever known, and they still can't prove that Bible wrong. I'm saying wisdom's getting louder and louder and louder. But how does man respond to it? We see the place of wisdom's voice, but notice the prospects of wisdom's voice. And I'm not going to dwell on it, but I just want to hit on it. Who is wisdom speaking to? Notice what it says in verse 22. How long, ye simple ones, will ye love simplicity? And the scorners delight in their scorning, and fools hate knowledge. There are three groups of people that God is wanting to save today. Let me say this again. There's three groups of people God is wanting to save today. I want you to notice them. First off, there's the simple, those that do not know. You know, that's what it means to be simple. If anybody ever calls you ignorant, don't take it as too great an offense, because it simply means you don't know. And let me say that in this world today, we don't like to admit it. We don't like to believe it. We stay in our little Bible belt buckle uh, here, and we don't like anybody to intrude on us. But there are places where they do not know the name of Jesus Christ. There are places where they may know the name, but they do not know the story. And there are places where they may know the name, and they may know the story, but they do not know the love of Jesus Christ. They've never seen it showed to them. And then there's the scornful, those that claim nothing can be known. That's what a scorner is, isn't it? How many of you were a teenager at one time? Anybody? A few? You were probably a scorner like me. And you'd sit and you'd, maybe you'd listen to your teacher. I've got some of my teachers in here. Or you'd listen to a preacher and you'd go, Psh. they think they know what they're talking about. That's what a scorner is. Sit and go, Psh. they think they really know, don't they? Can I clue you in on something? Some folks really do know. They really do. If the Word of God is your foundation... That person really knows. They really know. There is absolute truth in this world that we live in. There is absolute truth. You say, why does this bother you? Because our young people are getting bombarded on every side. When they turn on the TV, they're getting bombarded. When they go to school, they're getting bombarded. When they open their textbooks, they're getting bombarded. When they listen to music, they're getting bombarded with these lies that tell them there are no absolutes. There is no right or wrong. There is no absolute truth. Do what feels good. Live it up. Eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow you die. And that will send a person right to a devil's hell. There are absolutes in this world that we live in. There is absolute right and there is absolute wrong. So those, the scorners, those that mock, that say it can't be known. And then the fools. And I, I wish I could find a prettier word to use for this. Uh, but I wanted to alliterate. You know, preachers got to alliterate everything. It's got to have the right letter, you know. So there's the simple, the scornful, and then there's just the plain stupid. Those that refuse to know. Fools hate knowledge. Isn't that what your Bible says? How long will ye fools hate knowledge? There's some that just don't know. And there's some that say it can't be known. But there's some that know it can be known and refuse to know. Can I say God still wants to save people like that? People that are so obstinate and so entrenched in their wickedness and iniquity that they know what's right, but they just don't want to do it. Maybe you're here this morning and that's you. 
Maybe God has spoken to your heart, made clear through His Word something in your life. And you know He wants you to do it. And you know He wants you to give it up. Or you know He wants you to start that way. Whatever it is, He's spoken to your heart. And you've said, I know the truth, but I will not do it. Let me say it's not too late for you. Wisdom still cries out to you this morning to get your heart and life right. If you're lost, wisdom still cries out to you to get saved this morning. If you're out of the will of God, wisdom still cries out to you this morning to get your life and heart right. So we see the prospects of the voice of wisdom. Then notice, I like this, the promise of the voice of wisdom. Look at verse 23. It says, Turn you at my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my Spirit unto you. I will make known my words unto you. That's a promise that wisdom gives us. Or let me say it this way, that's a promise that God gives us. If we'll only turn. I want you to notice it's a conditional promise. In other words, God's not going to do it whether you like it or not. There are some things you have to do. There's only one thing mentioned in our text. What is it? Turn you at my reproof. Can I give you a good Bible word for that? Turn you at my reproof? And it's the word repentance. To repent of whatever it is, the Lord says that's the first step. If you won't repent, He won't do what He says He's about to do. But if you'll repent... Hey, listen, I came into the pulpit planning on preaching a whole different message this morning. But the Lord has something for somebody. I, I, I planned on preaching a salvation message this morning. But listen now, if you're saved and under the sound of my voice, and God's trying to get a hold of you, the only answer is to repent. You've got to change. We talk all the time about, well, the Lord will have to do it. Lord, I understand the Lord will have to do it, but I think a lot of time we know the Lord wants to do it. The question is whether do you want to do it or not. It's not the Lord holding things up. It's us. And so the question is, will we turn? Will we repent? And that's true for the sinner as well. He must repent. Then notice it's a promise of conversion. Look what it says. He says, Behold, I will pour out my Spirit unto you. That's what conversion means, isn't it? It's a change. If you get on uh, that, the, the interweb, you know you're old if you call it the interweb. You get on the Internet and go to Google, and you, you can Google, and you can find a currency conversion tool. And, and that allows you to put so many dollars in one currency, and it will convert that into another currency and tell you how much it's worth. Well, that's really what he's saying, isn't it? There's got to be a change take place in you. The Spirit of God has to be poured out upon you. That's true for the sinner. He can only be born again by the Spirit of God. And that's true for the saint as well. He needs a fresh and anew to be surrendered in obedience to the Holy Spirit. And then we see not only is it a promise with conditions and a promise of conversion, but it's a promise of communion. Look at the next phrase. What does he say? I will make my known my words unto you. The Lord says we're going to have communion then. We're going to have fellowship then. We're going to have a relationship then. Let me say, if you're out of the will of God, you'll never have the right kind of relationship with God until you repent and get it out of your life, whatever it is. Or sometimes get it into your life. Preachers always say, well, you've got to get it out of your life. Maybe what God's dealing with isn't about something you need to get out. It's about something you need to get in. Maybe it's about you needing to get that Bible in your life. Maybe it's about you needing to get that prayer closet in your life. Maybe it's about you needing to get that service into your life or get that ministry into your life. But whatever it is, the Lord says, if you'll get it straight, if you'll get it right, I'll help you to do it, and we can have communion. So we see the promise of wisdom's voice. Then I want you to notice, secondly, not only the voice of wisdom, but we see the vanity of the world. How does the world respond? Look at verse 24. The Lord says, because I have called and ye have 
refused. The sinner, first off, dismisses God's call. I'm thankful that the Lord doesn't come in like a wrecking ball on the first moment. We see in this passage, in fact, we're going to see three things, and I'll go ahead and give them to you before I preach it. We see they dismissed God's call, they discounted God's compassion, and they disdained God's counsel. But the first thing it begins with is God's call. He says this, I have called, and you refused. Listen, if you're here today and the voice of God is speaking to your heart, don't refuse it. Don't refuse it. If you're lost without Christ and the voice of God is speaking, don't refuse it. Don't turn it away. If you're saved and God's trying to work in your life, don't turn it away. Don't refuse it. Don't dismiss God's call. If it's important enough for the God of heaven to speak to you, then I'd say it's important enough for you to speak to Him. Boy, isn't it funny how prideful we are. We all are. I mean, I'm worse than any of you, you know. I got it. My wife has to deflate my head before I can even fit through that door. We're all prideful. I don't care who you are. But something about the pride of that notion that God would speak to me and I wouldn't speak back. That God would, would voice from heaven to my soul, and I wouldn't speak back. What pride is that? Well, the Bible says that pride goeth before destruction. Pride goeth before destruction. That, that's a good way to get destroyed, is to spurn the voice of God. Then notice the second thing. He says, I have stretched out my hand. Look at it. Verse 24, the last part of the verse. I have stretched out my hand and no man regarded. He's talking about his compassion. Now, if it was me or you, we would have called, and then that would have been it. Now, don't get me wrong. Sometimes, we'll, you know, I'll call my little boy, and, and if, he don't, if he don't come, I'll stretch out my hand. Amen. But that's not what God's talking about here. What God's talking about here is he says, I called to you, and you didn't answer, so I reached for you. I tried to do something in your life to get your attention. Wisdom tried to gain hold of you and do something in your life. You know, the Bible says it's the goodness of God that leadeth thee to repentance. The goodness of God. And can I say that humanity as a whole has discounted God's compassion upon them. Every day, the air we breathe up, most of the time we don't thank God for it. The beautiful sunshine. I was walking out there uh, in the sunshine and uh, in the parking lot. I saw Miss Callie. I said, Callie, did you order this beautiful day? She said, no. <laughs> I said, well, I, I'm thankful for it anyway. Amen. Thankful for it anyway. So many things God does in our life. You wouldn't be here today if God wasn't good to you. You wouldn't be. What is to keep you? Every one of us, we get on the road. I, I, don't, I only know one family that lives here. Amen. <laughs> the rest of you don't, so you drove here today, most of you. And what, what kept that car from crossing the center line? You know, the only thing that keeps us alive is two yellow lines and common sense. Common sense is pretty short today. What got you here today? God allowed you to be here today. He made that possible. He showed compassion upon you. He showed mercy upon you. And yet we discount it. We discount it. Then we see that they disdained God's counsel. What does that mean, God's counsel? Well, look what it says in verse 25. It says this, But ye have set at naught all my counsel, and would none of my reproof. It's very interesting if you were to read 1 Corinthians chapter 1 in light of Proverbs chapter number 1. Because what we sort of have in Proverbs chapter 1 is the the story of wisdom and sort of how that it failed humanity. How humanity did not respond to God through wisdom. 
And in 1 Corinthians chapter number 1, we have God still reaching humanity, but doing so through the preaching of the gospel. And you know what the Bible says in, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter number 1? God said this, that through the weak and small things He set to naught, He brought to nothing the wisdom of this world. Here we have humanity setting at naught God's wisdom. You say, what does that mean? It means making it void. Making it void. Making it of none effect. What is the counsel of God? Well, there's only one God, way that God's counseled us, and that's through His Word. And so what it's saying is you've made the Word of God, like Christ said to the Pharisees, you've made the Word of God of none effect. Let me say, this is a powerful book we have. Quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able. It's able to do in your life what needs to be done if you'll let it do what needs to be done in your life. But we can set God's counsel at naught. How do we do that? They would none of my reproof. You know why it is that this world is getting in worse shape day by day, and yet it seems like there's more preachers, there's more churches. You turn on the TV, you'll see some of these churches, and, and I'm not a poet. Listen, I, it'd be great. I mean, if we, if we ran, uh, you know, 10,000 people, I'd build me a gold house. That'd be great. I'm not, I'm not fussing, but I, I'm just saying, when you look on and you see these, these churches and their arenas, and there's 30 and 40,000 people in them, And the world is in worse shape than it's ever been. Why is that? It's not that they would none of my blessings. It's not that they would none of my comforts. It's they would none of my reproof. I don't mind hearing a good, fluffy, sweet message. But man, they don't want to hear the reproof of the Word of God. They don't want to be rebuked. They don't want solid preaching that makes you uncomfortable. Something's wrong if we go to church and don't get uncomfortable. When we go to church, we ought to get uncomfortable when the Word of God is preached because it ought to penetrate our hearts. It ought to speak to our souls. It ought to examine our lives. It ought to lay us open like a two-edged sword and fillet our iniquity right before our very eyes. I like what one guy said. He said, I like a preacher that will gut and field dress you right in the middle of the aisle. It should make us uncomfortable. It should do something within us. But this world would none of God's reproof. And by not heeding any of God's reproof, they said His counsel it not. Because you can't have one without the other. Oh, I, I praise the Lord for all the sweet preaching. I'm a sweet preacher. Right, Miss Kathy? I'm a sweet. She always says I'm not sweet. I'm real sweet, aren't I? I'm real sweet. I love sweet messages, man. I, you ought to come on Sunday night sometime. I preach real sweet on Sunday nights. Sunday mornings, I'm real hard on you, but Sunday nights, I mean, we have Wednesday nights. I mean, it's, it's so sweet. You better take your insulin before you get here. I mean, we have sweet. I love sweet messages. But there's two sides to the coin. And we may have a God of mercy, but we also have a God of holiness. We may have a God of grace, but we also have a God of judgment. And there's two sides to it. They would not of His reproof, so they said it not, His counsel. And then I want you to notice... The day came, we see a visitation of woe. Now, I want to explain this language, and I'm going to try to hurry. But I want to explain this, because most, most folks won't understand it without an explanation. It all goes back to verse 24. Notice the word because. Now, that's, that's the beginning of a statement. That's the beginning of a sentence. Because... I have called, and you refused. I have stretched out my hand, and no man regarded. But ye have said it not all my counsel, and would none of my reproof. Because of that, what's going to happen? Well, let me say this to you before we read this, that there's a day of judgment coming for all of us. 
every one of us. You say, but I'm saved. Paul said we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Every one of us has a day of judgment that's coming. Every one of us has a day when we'll have to stand before the Lord. And the sinner will have to stand at the great white throne judgment, and the saint will have to stand at the judgment seat of Christ. And when that day comes, how will God respond? We see a visitation of woe. How does God treat them? Notice verse 26, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your fear cometh, when your fear cometh as desolation, and your destruction cometh as a whirlwind, when distress and anguish cometh upon you. We see that first off, he meets them with derision. Now, there's, a, there's such a thing called comparative language in the Word of God. Let me give you an example. Christ said this uh, to those that were following Him. He said, No man is worthy of me except he hate his father and hate his mother, hate his brethren. Does that mean God wants us to hate folks? No. What it's saying is that the love of Christ in us should be so superlative that by comparison it'd make any other love, even the love we'd have for our family, to seem as hate in comparison. And this is comparative language. It's not saying God gets joy out of seeing the sinner die without Christ. Certainly, he doesn't. It grieves It's not to say that God gets joy when he sees the saint out of the will of God and their life in wreckage. No, it breaks the heart of God. But what it's saying is this. Before he was calling to them, but now it'll be as though he's laughing at them. He'll not intervene. He'll not step in. Let me tell you something. You die without Christ, there is no hope for you. There is no hope for you. There is no second chance. I don't care what the Roman Catholic Church says. There is no purgatory. Nobody can pray you out. Nobody can pay you out. You die without Christ. There is no hope for you. It'll be as though God was laughing at your calamity. It'll be as though God was gloating over you. Not that God gets joy out of it, but He'll treat you as someone that would gloat over you with derision. You've had your chance. And there is an expiration date. There is an expiration date. There, let me say this very carefully. There is an expiration date on the grace of God. And it's not measured by how many years it's been on the shelf. And it's not measured by whether there's any mold on it, because there's no mold on it. But it's measured by the moment that you leave this world. In that moment, you have no choices. You have no say anymore. If you're going to get saved, you better do it now, because you may not have tomorrow. Say, that's pushy. Well, I'd rather you see it pushed into heaven than fall into hell. Call it pushy if you want to. There's hell and it's real and you're in danger of it if you're a sinner. So at the risk of sounding pushy, you better get saved while you got the chance because you may not have the chance tomorrow. He met them with derision. Notice the second thing. Verse 28, Then shall they call upon me, but I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me, for that they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. Now, how did God respond at first? God called unto them and they dismissed the call. And so what did God do? When they wouldn't heed His voice, He hoped they'd reach His hand and He reached out in compassion. He reached out to try to make an influence upon the sinner. Maybe He did that in your life. I've I, I got to be honest with you. When I got saved, I don't remember being under conviction for a long period of time. In fact, I'm sort of of the belief that the moment that God showed me I was a sinner, that that night I accepted Christ. That doesn't make me better than you or worse than you or anything other than you, but I think that's the experience in my life. But some of you were under conviction, I'm sure, for a long period of time. 
And God could have snuffed you out, but instead, He just kept reaching for you and reaching. Kept sending the preacher your way. Kept sending the, the, the sermons your way. Kept sending the soul winners your way to try to reach you. But we find that in hell, though they were once met with compassion, now they're met with deafness. Though they call, I will not answer. There are no answered prayers in hell. You listening? There are no answered prayers in hell. Do you remember the rich man and Lazarus? All the things that the rich man asked for, none of them he got. He said, send Lazarus that he can dip his water in finger and touch the, the tip of my tongue that he might cool it. He said, no, nobody can go from here to you. And he says, well, well send Lazarus back that he can warn my five brothers. He said, no, if they won't heed the law and the prophets, there's no hope for them. There's no answered prayers in hell. You die without Christ, God will be deaf to your cries. And then notice, finally, God meets them with destruction. Before, how did He meet them? He met them with the Word of God. He met them with a final attempt. And by the way, if you won't believe this Bible, there's no help for you. There's no help for you. Old Oliver Green used to... Oliver B. Green, when, he, when he'd witness to people, the first thing he'd ask him, he'd say, do you believe the Bible is God's Word? they said, no, he'd say, I can't help you, I'm sorry. If you don't believe this is the Word of God, there's, there's no hope for you. But on that day, they'll be met with their destruction. I don't gloat over that. I don't rejoice in that. breaks my heart. I know it breaks God's heart, but it's the sheer reality of it. It's the sheer reality of it. You know what the Bible says? And I understand that this, there's an application to believers about this. I understand. But in the book of Hebrews, it says this, How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? I understand there's an application. I understand it may be direct. But the truth is the same for the sinner, just as it is for the saint. If, if you neglect the Word of God and the salvation of God, there's no hope for you. You'll be met with destruction. Notice this final thought. I don't have no sub-points. Don't get nervous. But Look at verse 33. We see the vouchsafe for the willing. I like that this chapter ends on a note of hope. Boy, after all that we've read, don't you need a note of hope? And look at verse 33. But whoso hearkeneth unto me shall dwell safely and shall be quiet from fear of evil. You say, preacher, is it too late for me? It's not too late for you. If you're under the sound of my voice, it's not too late for you. God had a message for you this morning. Evidently, He wants you to respond to it. It's not too late for you. If you'll what? If you'll hearken unto Him. You say, what, what does that mean to hearken? Well, it's sort of like this. Christ said in John 5, 24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me. That's what hearkening is. Not just to hear, but to hearken. You've heard the word, but will you hearken to it? And believeth on him that sent me. Hath everlasting life. And shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. If you'll turn to the Savior this morning, He'll save you. If you're out of the will of God, and if you'll turn back to the Savior, He'll restore you. He'll do in your life what you can't do. He'll fix that mess that you've made. And He'll do for you what you cannot do for yourself. 